Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Vive podcast by Debbie Caps, Women of Color for Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Kara Hernandez, and I'm the chair of the WCAPS Alyssa Trafficking Working Group. And I'm really excited to sit down today with my guest from the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, Research Fellow Dr. Rachel Esplin O'Dell, and Senior Research Fellow Jessica Lee. Welcome. Thanks so much for having having us. Well, if I could start us off, Kara, thank you again for this opportunity. As a WCAPS member, it's a real pleasure to be part of this podcast. I have known Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins through WCAPS uh, for several years now and was very happy to see that she was voted as the 2020 Arms Control Person of the Year. I think that's a recognition that's very well-deserved. And so I just want to start off this conversation by recognizing that distinction and the fact that that is, you know, I think uh, very emblematic of uh, WCAP's mission, which is to lift women of color in national security. And I just also wanted to, you know, frame today's conversation and along you know, the lines of what Martin Luther King has taught us. You know, we're recording this right before Martin Luther King weekend. And I've been thinking a lot about you know, his message of peace uh, and tolerance and inclusivity. And I think, you know, as we think about his legacy, it's really important for communities of color to have a voice in conversations about war and peace. You know, as we know, Dr. King was a fierce critic of the Vietnam War, and he warned that a country that invests more money on military than on programs to lift uh, its society uh, is approaching spiritual death. And so I think that is, um, you know, a very uh, powerful statement uh, and and something that is very much uh, relevant to today's conversation about, you know, ways in which U.S. foreign policy can be less militarized and more productive in one of the most uh, strategically important regions of the world, Asia. Um, You know, Rachel Michael Swain, our East Asia director at Quincy Institute, and I wrote this report because we think that the United States needs a new strategy toward East Asia one that's more balanced and emphasizes diplomatic engagement and uh, military restraint. And so we think that that strategy would do far more uh, to advance U.S. interests in a region that's experiencing tremendous change and transformation is evolving constantly. I think, you know, our vision is for a East Asia that is more inclusive, uh, where issues like climate change and pandemics are addressed uh, and uh, where U.S. uh, interests and uh, disputes and such are resolved through diplomacy uh, rather than through conflict. And uh, we think that particularly given, you know, uh, the last few years, you know, as Washington has uh, really uh, several uh, vocal members of the foreign policy community, not all, uh, have advocated for a a maximalist zero-sum strategy, particularly toward China. We think this report is particularly timely uh, and that our uh, recommendations hopefully will provide some useful uh, context for the Biden administration as it considers uh, how to grapple with you know regional as well as global challenges that are facing us. So I'll turn over to Rachel to give a little more context about the report and uh, some of our uh, China-specific recommendations. Yeah, thanks so much, Jess, for that great introduction. And thanks again, Kara, for having us on. I think you know one thing that I want to lead with is just to emphasize that 
East Asia as a region of the world is really important for U.S. interests. It's really critical that we get strategy in the region right. And in recent years, we've really been going the wrong direction. So what we've tried to do in this new strategy report is outline a new direction that will better serve U.S. interests. And, you know, what part of why this region is so important is precisely because of the integration that we have with the region uh, economically and and diplomatically and on a people-to-people basis. There are just really deep and long-standing ties between the United States and East Asia. And those ties have long served U.S. interests in a way that is really critical to our economic flourishing and to our security, our health, to the global environment. And what we're really calling for in this report is to think of security in the region in a more holistic sense and not through the traditional military lens only that has often sort of driven the way that the United States thinks about East Asia. It's true that we have a longstanding military presence in the region. A lot of this really emerged from the, the settlements that were reached after World War II and our presence in Japan in particular, and after the Korean War and our ongoing presence in Korea. And those are both important alliances that we need to continue to maintain those, those alliance commitments. But the way that our, our policy in the region has become quite imbalanced towards military approaches, as opposed to diplomatic and economic approaches, is actually not serving our interests or those of our allies or other countries in the region. And it's also, it's not only that, but the region is really changing a lot. And there's ways in which the the balance between in in those alliance relationships itself needs to change, where they need to become more equal uh, alliances instead of the United States sort of trying to act as, uh, as the sort of security guarantor or the senior partner in a relationship, we want to see more equal relationships in those alliances. And I think that these are, and and more generally, you know, the East Asia region accounts for a third of the Earth's population, a third of global GDP, 38% of human carbon emissions. So a lot of the really 21st century challenges that we're most likely to face, uh, climate change, and of course, pandemics, as we see, as we've seen this past year, um, really depend upon our, us getting our strategy right and, and prioritizing those issues over military competition. Thank you so much for for framing this conversation today, Jessica. I just wanted to say that, and I'm really grateful to have you both on the podcast because this is something that I feel like I can learn from, and I feel like even people who are, you know, experts on East Asia, experts on China, experts on North Korea, could really learn from both of you to kind of carve out a more inclusive path forward in U.S. policy. One interesting thing that you, you say in your report and you know, what we've talked about is kind of restructuring of U.S. alliances to encourage more inclusive forms of regional engagement for the benefit of the region, but also for the United States and kind of how you do these direct ties of how security and prosperity for the American people are tied to having a really strong and effective and balanced, like you say, U.S. strategy in East Asia. Asia. I'm actually really interested to hear a little bit more about your recommendations that you recommend that Washington engages in direct negotiations with China to reduce military tensions and arms race over Taiwan and maritime disputes. Would Could you describe a little bit of the current challenges and identify other stakeholders who might be monumental in peaceful negotiations? Yes, thanks. And this is you know, these these are sort of the core issues that really could under, undermine or disrupt peace and stability in this region. There's longstanding sort of tensions over maritime disputes. Some of these stem from you know disputes among countries in the region 
between China and Japan or between among China, the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, over mostly uninhabited reefs and islands in the South China Sea. And while at first glance, they don't seem, you know, very, you know, intrinsically significant because they're mostly uninhabited, of course, for, for these countries, they don't see it that way. They see, they see these disputes over over both the, these land features themselves, these islands and reefs, as well as the maritime resources, so the fish and the oil and natural gas in the seabed as being really you know, important both for their, their national prosperity as well as sort of their national sovereignty. And so this oftentimes gets tied up in nationalist sentiment in each of these countries. And so that those kinds of uh, tensions can really lead towards conflict in the region. And, and what we argue in this report is that the United States needs to play a more constructive role in trying to mitigate that tension through diplomatic engagement. Whereas over the past decade in particular, we've in, in, interfered in these disputes in ways where, that have actually exacerbated and driven tension. Now, the other example you pointed to was Taiwan, and this is probably an even more likely source of conflict in the region. And there's a really complex history here. Um, I won't get into all of the details, but Basically, uh, you know, after the Chinese Civil War, which both preceded and continued after World War II and China's war against Japan dur during World War II, the, the nationalist forces, which had led the Republic of China, lost to the communist forces on the mainland and fled to Taiwan. They, you know, ever since then have kind of feuded over, over who has rightful sovereignty or, or, or control governance over China. And for, for a long time, right after that, the United States, for a couple of decades, continued to recognize the Republic of China on Taiwan as the sovereign government of China. But then in the 70s, we, we over a course of negotiations from the Nixon administration through the Carter to the Reagan administrations, transferred our formal diplomatic recognition from the Republic of China on Taiwan to the People's Republic of China on the mainland. And that has involved a number of really sort of delicate, complex diplomatic understandings, including what's called the One China Policy, where we, we acknowledge that we, we don't recognize two different Chinas, you know, Taiwan and China are two different Chinese governments. We recognize China, the People's Republic of China as the sole government of China, and we acknowledge their position that Taiwan is part of China, though we don't you know, formally agree with that necessarily, kind of ambiguous about it. So anyway, this is kind of how we've managed this for a long time, but in recent years, this has started to become unsettled because for a variety of reasons. On one hand, China has become more authoritarian. The People's Republic of China has become more authoritarian at home and in the way that it's cracked down on autonomy in Hong Kong, which is, has been a sort of semi-autonomous you know, province of, of China um, that you know, used to be under British imperial or colonial control and reverted in the 90s to, the, to mainland control. And in recent years, they've really cracked down more on their autonomy. And so I think tai Taiwan, a lot of people in Taiwan have seen this and have worried that if they were ever to become, you know, more unified with the, the mainland, that that might also infringe on their de democracy, where, you know, Taiwan has democracy in a way that the mainland doesn't. And so they've become more sort of inclined towards leaning away from ever, you know, ever unifying with China or more towards independence. And at the same time, the Trump administration has engaged in a number of actions that have really tried to suggest that it have moved us away from that one China policy that's maintained a stable balance. So anyway, I'm getting I'm getting into the weeds, but it's it's an important it's an important issue to kind of understand some of that background context. 
And, and of course, China, in response to these changes, China views the Taiwan issue as so central to its national sovereignty and sort of its interests that they have engaged in increase, increasing sort of military intimidation of Taiwan. So there's really an unstable dynamic here. And so we we talk about how we could really engage, we could really shift the needle towards greater stability in the Taiwan Strait through uh, various policy changes in this report. And I think it's really important what you're touching on. I know it's hard because sometimes it's hard to to sum up and summarize these really important historical factors into it. But when really looking at this approach, it seems like the structural and attitudinal factors of nationalism, of his you know, policy of the history in the region, not whether between countries, but also from the US to to East Asia are so important to what's happening today. And it's hard to kind of separate the two. And I really do think that you do a great way on bringing that approach into your policy recommendations, into what you kind of are recommending for a new path forward that's looking at these things and actually addressing them. I know a lot of people you know, say, oh, I know this has happened in the past, but they don't really understand how big of a push these attitudinal factors and cultural and linguistic differences really are so important to the region. So thank you so much for giving us that background. Kind of shifting towards North Korea, Jessica, I wanted to ask you specifically about something that came up in the report. You recommended that the United States transition to a policy evolving gradual synchronized steps towards peace and denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. What would that look like? I would love to hear what you think that would look like um, going forward. Thanks for the question, Kara. Um, I think, you know, the issue of North Korea is going to be an urgent priority of the Biden administration. Um, we saw over the weekend in terms of, you know, the, the um, North Korea's capabilities growing, uh, both on the nuclear side and ballistic missile side. And we are, uh, I think, as a country, um, you know, sort of, uh, confused about uh, the best approach. And so I hope this report and, and what we recommend, particularly regarding a more gradual, synchronized approach is taken seriously. You know, I, I think generally speaking, you know, the Korean War is one of those things that uh, most Americans have forgotten about. You know, it's sandwiched between World War II and Vietnam War. And we don't talk about it. Um, we don't really, you know, appreciate the fact that it's technically ongoing. There was never a peace treaty formally ending the war. And so uh, we've been calling that war an original for forever war. <laughs> As the Quincy Institute, you know, we, we try to focus on how the genesis of forever wars and how we might end these prolonged indefinite conflicts that drain national resources. And so, you know, as we think about the Korean War and why it's still ongoing 70 years after, you know, it began, you know, we uh, presented an alternative, which is to stop uh, you know, fueling uh, the cause of the Korean War, you know, which is the political instability and, and sort of the uncertainty and ambiguity over uh, the status of that war. And, and quickly shift to reaching some sort of a more realistic short-term deal that would at least give the United States better clarity on what North Korea has by way of nuclear weapons. Right now, we don't know. You know, U.S. Army last July estimated somewhere between 20 to 60 nuclear bombs. That's a big range. <laughs> and many uh, top uh, officials, uh, both in the U.S. military as well as in uh, the executive branch have, and the intelligence community have right, rightly warned uh, that not knowing anything about North Korea is to the United States detriment. Uh, this is a very dangerous situation. Uh, and the longer we prolong this problem by setting impossibly high standards, I think the, the more United States will, you know, 
uh, be, you know, at risk. And so specifically, you know, the report points out that to get to this political issue of the war, and you know, we need to have a person who will, you know, negotiate a peace treaty. And so one, the first thing the incoming President Biden can do is just make a speech saying that the United States, you know, no longer considers the Korean War to be an ongoing conflict and that it wants to seek peace. Uh, with the parties of that war, namely North Korea and China. And Biden should quickly appoint special envoy to negotiate a peace treaty that will be signed and ratified by the U.S. Senate, as well as with the parties of war in close consultation with South Korea and, and perhaps Japan as well. And so I think that's the, the work, you know, a process that leads with the political question of U.S.-North Korea relations, we believe, you know, rather than a myopic focus on denuclearization, ultimately we'll have a better chance of success and prevent catastrophic conflict on the Korean peninsula. And so I think that's, um, you know, essentially what we're advocating. And, you know, it, it's going to take a lot of work. You know, we, uh, my sense, you know, reading uh, the recent, or over the years, rather, you know, the commentaries by the chief negotiators of JCPOA, the Iran deal, it took, you know, hundreds of professionals in the U.S. government uh, to get to that deal, uh, not to mention you know, sort of the, the the secret, unofficial talks, official talks, and a whole host of other things that happened uh, that, you know, um, ultimately brought about that um, monumental arms control agreement. And so that is a good example of the kind of multilateral diplomacy that I think is needed. Uh, now, North Korea and Iran are two very different countries in many respects. Uh, but on that, you know, uh, issue of, you know, how to think about the North Korea question, it's not simply about waiting until North Korea one day decides to give up all of its nuclear weapons. Uh, even if it chose to, you know, we wouldn't even know where those nuclear weapons are. Uh, that's how bad our intelligence is. And so, you know, there has to be a more realistic, more humble uh, approach, you know, that doesn't uh, prolong this problem. Um, you know, North Korea's uh, leader, Kim Jong-un, declared in a recent you know, meeting that the United States is its biggest enemy and that it's going to build new uh, nuclear weapons to counter uh, and deter against uh, possible U.S. Uh, attack. And so that's, you know, I think, you know, where we are. And I think it is very much um, uh, going to be an issue uh, that will require um, diplomacy, uh, humility, and, you know, uh, really approaching this issue without the assumption that the United States has all the answers or that the United States has always been uh, duped. <laughs> um, you know, a more careful, careful reading of uh, negotiations be, uh, between U.S. and uh, North Korea over the last 25 years show that it was both sides that actually uh, reneged on various aspects of agreements. And so this is not a simple, uh, you know, binary issue. This is not uh, a situation where U.S. is completely blameless or North Korea is completely blameless. You know, both sides, uh, I think, have a lot of work to do um, to ultimately build the trust that's needed for uh, an agreement. That I mean, coming from a background personally of working in Costa Rica, a country without the military, I could not agree more that I think Biden should focus more on peaceful negotiations and diplomatic means and kind of turning away from demilitarization of our foreign policy approaches, not only in East Asia, but kind of over all over the world and kind of ending these endless war wars. However, as we look at the Biden administration's recent uh, appointments, it seems like the next administration will be looking at domestic and foreign policy through security lens. What are some recommendations that you would give the next administration to have a more gradual and holistic approach to the region? Yes, I, I think it's really vital that we rethink 
our basic approach to national security. And this is as true in East Asia region as any other region. Um, and maybe, you know, even more so in some ways because we have such a, a longstanding military presence in the region. And yet the challenges that we face in East Asia are much more about economic, we need to deepen our economic engagement in the region. We need to enhance diplomatic engagement to solve problems like climate change and pandemics and increase coordination around these issues, as well as to make sure that we're not promoting arms racing in the region. So we need more arms control engagement. And I think that really the past year, and well, of course, the past 20 years as we've engaged in military operations around the world that have just caused mass destabilization, refugee flows, not to mention really increasing the carbon emissions from the military, which, you know, if it were a country would be, would emit more, it emits more carbon emissions than 140 countries around the world. So you know, it would rank it among, among the top tier of carbon emitters. And the more uh, we use force around the world, it's, we're just actually directly contributing to climate change and not solving the problems we're seeking to solve. And then, yeah, this past year has shown that really the, the greatest potential threats to Americans come from not countries, but from things like climate change and pandemics, where we see how much those directly affect the lives of Americans and people around the world. And so instead of thinking in narrow national security terms, we really need to broaden the aperture to think in more holistic terms about what it is that, that the United States foreign policy and strategy around the world ought to be promoting and what ought to be its priority. And in East Asia, we argue that we really need this rebalancing and that by far the most important interests we have in the region are cooperating with all countries in the region rather than you know, trying to divide the region up and make countries choose between the United States and China and some sort of new Cold War-like strategy. Instead, we need to promote inclusive multilateralism in the region, where all countries in the region, including U.S. allies, including China, including other countries in the region, are coming together to try to identify a cooperative security agenda and a holistic security agenda that will enable us to tackle these kinds of really more existential threats to all of our well-being, uh, pandemics, climate change, uh, non, uh, nu nuclear proliferation, maritime security, things where we really need to work together collectively, where we can't achieve what we need to by dividing the world up into friends and enemies and trying to yeah, uh, pursue this more confrontational and hostile approach to countries that, yes, we, we have major disagreements with. You know, China is, it is an authoritarian regime. And in recent years, it's been, it's been moving more in that direction. And that, that what we need to do, instead of trying to treat it as an enemy, is to engage with it in areas where we have shared interests, and then to, in order to you know push back against its author, its rising authoritarianism, we need to set a bad, better example at, domestically of what a democracy looks like that's inclusive, that's just, that provides for the civil and human rights of all of its people, not just um, those who've been traditionally privileged. And that's really the best way to set an example to the world of what a democracy can be, and what what a uh, human rights protection actually looks like. Yeah, if I can add to that, Kara, you know, I, I think Rachel is exactly right. We need to look inward at the current state of our country and our uh, nation's capital. And, you know, first of all, you know, figure out, are we on the right path? You know, the pandemic is, I think, a clearest example of the need for uh, the United States to work with multilateral organizations, work with countries like China, because Pandemics know no borders. Um, that's what we learned. And so, 
you know, what we saw in the Trump administration, unfortunately, was this very um, overt an- antipathy and a-, a very zero-sum view of China and its intentions. And it became, you know, wrapped up and, and we got sort of locked in this sort of ideological framework that I think directly prevents us from pragmatic, practical cooperation that would save American lives and, and lives of folks around the world that are grappling with this deadly uh, virus. And so, you know, the Quincy Institute was very pleased to help with a letter uh, signed by over 100 members of Congress that stated just that. This went out last October and it was addressed to Secretary of State uh, Pompeo and Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar. And, you know, the members of Congress were very clear that, you know, this way of viewing, um, you know, China and multilateral institutions like the WHO and UN hurts American interests uh, at a time when global cooperation is needed more than ever before. Um, so I think, you know, that is an area where uh, the Biden administration, uh, I think, clearly has shown interest in uh, correcting. But I will say, you know, Kara, to your question, you know, and, and sort of what you seem to imply about, you know, the, the folks that have been nominated uh, to join the Biden administration, you know, there are many folks who, uh, first of all, are women, which I think is is progress. And I'm very, uh, you know, as a woman, <laughs> very happy to see that. Uh, but there are other ways in which, you know, Biden's nominees are more of the same, right? We're seeing a lot of folks from the Obama administration uh, period uh, reemerge in various positions, some of whom, like Susan Rice, I think will be excellent in, you know, really bridging this hyper-militarized uh, foreign policy with, you know, its impact on the domestic policies. And so I think uh, those are innovative and, and interesting and welcome. But there are others who, you know, I think will prefer a uh, military dominance, a U.S. primacy, very stark uh, worldview, um, you know, with respect to China and, and such approach that we think misses the nuance and the multilateralism that this moment calls for. So, you know, I am concerned. Uh, and I think part of what uh, we would like to do uh, through this report and in future writing is to show uh, that the, the, that what, what such a policy of, you know, based on military dominance uh, would do uh, to, to reduce, you know, U.S. government's capacity for healing, uh, for, you know, revitalization you know, et cetera. So I do think this is an important moment. And I I, I think, um, you know, in some of the work uh, that we've seen, you know, whether it's at the Carnegie Endowment or uh, some of the folks in the Gen Z community that are, you know, calling for a more peaceful, pragmatic uh, foreign policy, you know, I, I am ultimately heartened that people are asking these questions. I think the, what remains to be seen, though, is who in the U.S. federal government uh, will really be empowered uh, to to uh, pursue a more balanced uh, foreign policy, uh, especially toward Asia, uh, given the strident language that we've seen on particular. Thank you so much, Jessica. I also think that you touched upon a really salient point. And as you know, in WCAMPS, we really do work on redefining the national security sector. We have a, a huge focus on that and what it actually means to work off this old format of when the world was siloed into very these very rigid fields of this is security, this is not security. And we've some, you know, the world hasn't become any smaller, but rather we've kind of seen a little bit of a shift towards placing value on interconnectivity between fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, health, and so forth. And, you know, I do applaud the Biden administration for 
focusing also on diversity, diversity of thought, and also people's diversity that they they bring in. However, I would like to see what they're going to do now that they are nominated. I would like to kind of see how we can transform into a more peaceful world using these strategies. And I really hope and that they kind of steward us into a new generation being more creative. And that's what another thing that I really loved about your report is your focus not only on military innovations, but you also made a point to talk about climate change. You made a point to talk about gender. You made a point to talk about the pandemic, these really salient things that affect every part of, of, of international security, but are also of our national security. I think these things are all tied together. And I recommend everyone to, to go download the report. But kind of as a end capping of this conversation, I think it's really important and something that I try to do in my work is to really put an emphasis and focus on how could we increase and empower the role of women, especially women of color, in the roles of building a new strategy in East Asia. How do you recommend opening up more spots at the table to give women of color more agency and re-engagement of the region? I think this is something that we need to see more of. And I know there's been a very long history of women peace builders in the region. And I would love to hear more from you all on some suggestions of how we can open up the space, but how also women of color can also enter the space. Yeah, I can start off, um, Kara. Thanks for that question. I, I really love it. And I, you know, again, I uh, want to thank you for this opportunity to connect with you and the WCAPS community about uh, not just our report, but, you know, the fact that we need more women, uh, especially women of color in roles that will allow us to shape foreign policy. You know, it is the national security apparatus is expensive. <laughs> it takes a lot of taxpayer money uh, to feed. And we are, you know, uh, part of that. And so as, as women who have traditionally been marginalized, who traditionally have not held roles uh, where we can influence uh, those policies, I think WCAPS is doing some of the most important work, uh, most groundbreaking work uh, in Washington to lift uh, our voices, you know, through platforms like this podcast. So again, I really applaud you and your initiative and bringing us all together today. You know, I think you alluded to as well, you know, we need women uh, strategists and peace builders, uh, women and men, right? <laughs> uh, strategists and peace builders who will help uh, the national security apparatus that Susan Rice, you know, famously called pale, Yale and male. Um, and, you know, give us, uh, you know, provide more, more uh, diverse uh, views that, you know, I, I don't think get a fair uh, airing. Part of it is that Washington tends to lift up folks who have uh, many years of government experience or otherwise connected already to the establishment, making it very difficult for folks to break in. Um, and so, you know, I struggled with that when I started in Washington 12 years ago, as you can imagine, uh, as a Korean American, you know, with uh, very little political connections or wealth. And so I think this is something that, you know, women of color struggle with. And I think, you know, every step of our career, uh, we're confronted with, you know, something I uh, experience almost daily, which is a sense of, you know, being an imposter, uh, because we're there's so few of us uh, at the table. So I think all that said about sort of the general importance of, of women of color and women more broadly in conversations about peace and war, you know, I, I know there's been a lot of studies done about how having more women incorporated earlier on in any peace process 
uh, increases the likelihood of that agreement sticking uh, because women are sort of the glue in the society. And so it just makes good practical sense, good strategic sense uh, to bring women earlier on in the conversation uh, before, you know, things are sort of agreed upon uh, at the government to government level. And I, you know, I see this time and again on the in the context of South Korea and Japan, two of our uh, uh, key allies in East Asia, where, you know, they're grappling with uh, history issues and, you know, legacy issues and, um, you know, uh, treatment of women during uh, World War II and Japanese colonialism. But these conversations are, you know, often being held uh, among women, uh, among men. <laughs> and so I've seen photos where it's like all like a table full of men, you know, shaking hands and, you know, opining about this issue. And, and you know, it, it's it's a little bit ridiculous. And, you know, I think we need people to say, hey, women have equal value. And, you know, we are a, a critical, indispensable player in any conversation that affect you know, national interests and you know, we need to have more women, you know, force a conversation about how these ideas uh, are implemented. You know, a lot of what we're talking about on the report are both very conceptual, uh, but also very practical. Um, these are things that we believe most Americans would agree with, you know, in terms of U.S. government doing more to make sure Miami doesn't, you know, isn't gone in a few decades because of climate change. Pandemics don't become you know, a regular thing uh, and that, you know, we don't get to see our family members again uh, or, you know, I, my daughter can't go to school <laughs> without wearing a mask and being uh, highly restricted in her movement. You know, these are just things that most Americans, I think, would would expect from U.S. government. Yet conversation in Washington tends to, you know, obfuscate that very pragmatic common sense approach and in favor of a very militarized, fear based, threat escalating, you know, language that ultimately fuels uh, more military spending. Uh, and right now it's going toward East. Yeah. And I think in addition to not only needing to redirect our focus towards these, what, what we might call non-traditional security challenges, there's, you know, a fundamental way in which even if you do think that, you know, great power competition is the, the should be the, the watchword of U.S. foreign policy, the way that we're going about this competition you know, we're putting too much of an emphasis on military on military tools. That actually, the 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 nature of the competition the United States has with China is is much more about what kind of example are we going to set for the world? What kind of model are we trying to emulate? And what kind of um, economic health and vitality are, are do we have domestically? And and also sort of what what kind of economic partnerships and aid can we offer to the rest of the world? And, you know, I, I as indicated earlier, I'm skeptical that this great power competition framework is the right framework. That said, I also believe in the American model and I believe in the in the vision of an American of of our aspirations for equality and justice and liberty for all. And. I believe in American democracy, even though you know it's been a it's been a rough it's been a rough while for for American democracy, and I think that I, I want to see that vision succeed, but I believe that when we militarize our foreign policy, that has negative consequences for 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 precisely that for for our democracy at home. I think that the way that we have engaged in uh, military interventions around the world has led towards as has the military has developed a lot of technologies and equipment and training that ends up coming back to police forces in the United States. A lot of people who study this have shown that there's a direct linkage there. 
In fact, there's laws that, that facilitate the transfer of military equipment to police forces after it's been used in these, in these wars abroad. And that is leading towards you know, ex excessive brutality in policing in, here in the United States, which of course it, you know, disproportionately affects people of color. And the resources that we're spending on our, on our really bloated military budgets could instead be used to revitalize education, infrastructure, public health in ways that would also help to create more equality uh, at home. Uh, because as we've seen in the pandemic, when we don't have adequate public health infrastructure, or when we don't have adequate resourcing towards education, that directly impacts people of color the most. Uh, it, it disproportionately harms people of color. And so I think all of these are things where if we can reorder our priorities, it will really help revitalize our, our democracy and our society here in the United States, which, which ends up helping us to better promote those values abroad. And that that's really, that's really where we need to be putting our priority. And I think that way, if we're prioritizing those issues at home while prioritizing diplomatic cooperation and engagement abroad, we can really get the best of both worlds where we're achieving the kind of cooperation and progress we need with, with countries that we don't, who we don't agree with their domestic political models. Um, but we are, we do need to work with them like countries like China on things like climate change and pandemics. So we're, we're making progress on those issues while also showing the world that there is a better way than the sort of techno authoritarianism of the Chinese regime. That, that we can set that better model by, by showing what a more liberal society that really cares for, you know, all of its people looks like. And Kara, if I could just add to what Rachel said, you know, I, I think another element to all this, when we think about a more diverse national security workforce, I'm reminded of the foreign affairs article that uh, incoming CIA director Bill Burns and uh, incoming U.S. ambassador to UN Linda Thomas-Greenfield wrote last September, in which, you know, they highlighted the need for a foreign service and a diplomacy, a diplomatic corps that, you know, better reflects America. And this includes training and, and empowering folks who have knowledge about Asia. You know, they noted uh, that the State Department trains almost twice as many Portuguese speakers as it does Arabic or Chinese speakers. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, improving um, and, you know, perhaps uh, updating of our, you know, diplomacy and, and who conducts uh, diplomacy and who represents America uh, abroad and, and, you know, how they are trained to understand the other side uh, that we need to think about as well. So uh, I hope that, you know, we not only cultivate more women of color in, in you know, policy roles, uh, we also incorporate more folks who are ideologically different, who have international experience, who, you know, maybe immigrants like me, uh, but really believe, as Rachel said, in the in the promise of, of this country um, and, you know, the, the vital interest in uh, maintaining our democratic form of governance, you know, here at home. So I think there's a lot of work to be done, uh, but I would especially like to see more women of color um, in these conversations because I think, you know, they uh, are underrepresented, um, but, you know, we, we need to, we need to help them uh, advance and um, they have a lot to contribute. Um, you know, many of my friends are women of color and they are every bit as, as smart as the folks I read uh, in foreign affairs magazine. And, you know, so uh, we, we really need to think carefully about who is at the table and how to build that pipe there. 
Well, I just wanted to thank you both <laughs> for sitting down and speaking with me today. This is one of the most fascinating conversations I've had in a very long time. You know, at my work at WCAPS really evolves around talking about illicit trafficking with an emphasis on transnational organized crime. But I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to talk with you both and actually learn so much from you about how the U.S. can address um, international security and conflict as a whole to bring greater prosperity and security, not only to East Asia, but also at home. Instability begets instability. And I think the things that you brought up today are so important to really address the root causes of some of these major issues that we're seeing, whether that be illicit trafficking, my background, but also issues that we have with um, the pandemic, with climate change. And I think being able to focus on what we have in let me start up. And being able to focus on the similarities and the issues that we can work together to bring great prosperity is actually where we should be looking at our focus. I think turning away from kind of a military approach to foreign policy is going to be really salient, but also how do you bring in more diverse voices? How do you bring in more holistic approaches? to how we see the region in our diplomatic corps, in our armed forces, but also as a nation as a whole. And I think this is an old kind of phrase that people use, but we're going to have to build the plane as we fly. We're going to have to address these issues happening currently as we build this plane and rebuild America to be a little bit more inclusive and to bring in these diverse voices only for the benefit for all. So I'm very excited for this conversation. And I just want to thank you once again, and please let us know how we can access your report and how to follow more of your work. Yes, it's on our website, quincyinst.org. And so please uh, feel free to take a look at the report. There's a short executive summary as well. Uh, so don't be deterred by the length. <laughs> and then uh, Rachel and I are both active on Twitter. And we welcome your feedback and direct engagement there, as well as uh, via email or has. So um, thank you again for this opportunity. This was personally very meaningful to contribute to WCAP's uh, ongoing conversations about race and foreign policy. Yes, thanks so much for bringing us on. I really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you so much for the work that you do and for the perspectives and the voice that you have to, to offer. It's so vital. And I, I just really grateful for your work. No, thank you both for coming on the podcast today.